It was Sunday night, April 14th, 1912. And this past April makes 101 years since that fateful night. It was dark in the North Atlantic. It was really cold. The ocean hovered somewhere around 28 degrees Fahrenheit. And on her fifth day at sea, on her maiden voyage, the big ship sped along at just over 20 knots, heading west. The ship had departed from Southampton, England, and her destination was New York City. She was almost three football fields long, 30 yards wide, six stories tall. She weighed over 46,000 tons, and she could generate some 46,000 horsepower. She could cruise at 21 knots or somewhere around 24 miles an hour. And that night there were 2,224 passengers and crew distributed among her eight decks. Together with her sister ship, the Olympic, these were the largest passenger lines in the world at that time. And she really represented the apex of what you might call British wealth, technology, and shipbuilding skill. The best in the world. And from the time that her hull was laid down, that first day, it took three full years to bring her to completion. She truly was the pride and joy of the White Star Line in Britain's shipbuilding industry. And by every account, she was a floating palace that was deemed unsinkable. The ship had received a number of warnings from other ships in the area of the danger of drifting ice near the Great Banks of Newfoundland. Yet Captain Edward Smith pushed his ship on to the destination at full steam ahead. What was he thinking? He had declared this before the journey that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. And he said this, modern shipbuilding had gone beyond that. The time was 11.40 p.m. 27-year-old lookout Frederick Fleet first spotted danger ahead of the great ship. And he immediately alerted the bridge with the words, Iceberg, right ahead. First Officer William Murdoch gave the orders for direct evasive action to maneuver the ship around the iceberg and for the engines to be put in reverse. Just imagine that. However, the crew knew from a test crash stop, if you will, that it took a full three minutes and 15 seconds for this enormous 46,000 ton ship to come to a full and complete rest once the engines were reversed. It was, as we say, too little, too late. And her starboard side struck this iceberg. Five of her 16 watertight compartments were pierced and they began to fill with essentially lethal water. It was a death sentence for the ship. And less than three hours later, her bow plunged straight down into the cold Atlantic on that moonless night. Think about that. No light. And her stern rose up almost straight up. Panicked passengers and crew clung to anything on which they could get a grip. And then all at once, she sank. Three years in the making, less than three hours of float time once she hit that iceberg. And when she fully sank, 
Only 13 persons were pulled alive from the ocean, though there was still room for 500 more in the lifeboats. Two-thirds of the 2,200 souls on the ship perished. We're, of course, today considering the tragedy of the Titanic. In failure to effectively watch for, failure to successfully guard against, and failure to keep the Titanic from this single danger of icebergs had tragic consequences. Just a few hours, over 1,500 souls perished. And the Bible says that in the same way we need to practice this vigilant watch, this most diligent keeping, and a protective guard over this most valuable asset, our hearts. It's the most important watch of your life. Nothing trumps it. And that's the point of our passage this morning. We could stop there. That's it. Nothing trumps this most important watch over our hearts. So for a few moments, I want us to think about Proverbs 4, 20 through 27. I want us to hear the words. I want us to look at them carefully. So if you will take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Proverbs 4. We're going to read verses 20 through 27. I thought it was ironic this morning that you should come to your reading in Proverbs 1, just right when we're going to preach on it. And you would notice in Proverbs 1, 8, and then finally, if you looked ahead to 7, 1, in the first seven chapters of Proverbs, Solomon begins each section with these words, My son. He connects his teaching in his context of relationship, and he, every time it's my son. He says, give me your ears. So here we go. My son, be attentive to my words. This is Proverbs 4, verse 20. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them. They are healing to all their flesh. And here's our verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Truly one of the greatest and wisest kings ever was Solomon. He cared for his kids just like you do if you're a dad or a mom. And he loved them enough intentionally to intentionally instruct them, to teach them. You see these words here, his the words of verse 20, his sayings there, verse, the second part of verse 20, he says, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. And his writing reflected this type of love, a real intentional love. He crafted his words and sayings for his children's benefit. And he desired his sons and really his daughters for that matter to live well, to prosper, and to steer clear of evil to pursue and know the real way of knowledge and wisdom. In fact, it's kind of summarized right there in chapter 1, verse 7. We saw the purpose this morning 
of this book. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon would have been grieved to see the bumper sticker we saw two weeks ago in Massachusetts on the way towards Boston that said, evildoer, one word on the back of a car. It is a young lady driving, and I thought how that would have grieved the heart of Solomon to see someone saying, in this car rides or drives an evildoer. Solomon encouraged his sons to devote at least two of their senses to his words and sayings. And we understand this. He said, give me your ears, be attentive to my words, and incline your ear to my sayings. He's like, lean in a little closer so you catch every word. And you understand that. When someone has something to say that you really want to hear, you want to hear every word. And some of us who are a little closer to midlife, when our hearing and our eyesight begins to not quite be what it was when we were 20. So I say, if you're 20, enjoy what you've got because it's not going to be forever. You have to at times, you find yourself saying, can you repeat that? I want to hear it. I don't want to miss any words. And Solomon was like this. He said, I want you to listen, son, with real understanding. It's that important. I love your soul that much. And he said, and give me your eyes. He said, don't let your eyes miss any of what I'm telling you. Anything. Pay attention. He says, let them not escape from your sight. Keep them, that is my words and my sayings within your heart. He says, I want you to see with real understanding. And we just use this word see as a metaphor for knowledge and understanding. That's what Solomon was doing. And all this ears and eyes stuff is just a way of saying, he said, take all that you are and all that you have, take your ears and eyes, all your everything that you've got, all your members, all your senses, pay attention to me. I've got special stuff for you. It's life-giving words and sayings that I've prepared for you. That's why you see this pattern from beginning in Proverbs 1.8 all the way to 7.1. Every section is marked off with, my son, give me your attention. And then this relationship, this thing of relationship. It's not, hey, you, it's what? My son. Yeah. I've got a friend, Dan. When his daughter, Rebecca, was six, she was trying to talk to her dad. And uh, he was reading the newspaper, wasn't paying attention. You know what it's like, Dad? Sometimes your children are trying to talk to you and you're what? Pretending to listen. I think we do that sometimes with our wives. And so he, she's talking, he's reading, not paying attention, giving the uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And finally she's like, she moves the paper out of the way. She puts her hands, whoa. She puts her hands on her dad's face. And she says, Daddy, listen to me with your what? Eyes. Listen to me with your eyes. And Solomon is saying here, Son, listen to me not just with your ears, but with your eyes and all that you have. What I've got to say to you is that important and I don't want you to miss one word. Now we come to our verse. Verse 23. And today we'll focus just on one single verse. It's interesting because it takes up only one line really in the Hebrew Bible. And there's a grand total of one verb in the verse. 
Keep, there's the verb, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. One verse, one line, one verb, one key thought. And I like another version of this verse from the the NIV. It says this, and I really think it gets the sense of it. They translate it this way, Above all, guard, above all else, guard your heart, for for it is the wellspring of life. Well, how would you break this verse down for a six-year-old? That's how, when any time I preach, I think, how do we look at this in a way that a six-year-old can understand it? And the goal ultimately here, right, is not just more information, but it's transformation. It's being changed, leaving here differently than when we came in here at 11 this morning. So the litmus test is, can a six-year-old understand it? And if we've, we've made it that simple, then maybe we can avoid missing the profound truth in it. So first, there's something to do. Notice that. There's something to which you and I must devote our attention. It's the what, right? It's the what. And the verses which precede verse 23 set us up for the what. Solomon says we must keep our hearts. Some of your versions might have the word watch. We must watch our hearts. We must guard our hearts. And then second, he tells us how we must do it. We must do it with all vigilance or with all diligence or above all else. Then lastly, he tells us why we must keep our hearts with all diligence. He says, for from it flow the springs of life. Other versions might say, for out of it are the issues of life. And if you're like me, sometimes you need a compelling reason to do something. Do some of you relate to that? You want to know the why, right? And your children will do that with you. You say, do this, and they ask what? Why? Give me a reason. And Solomon provides that for us in the last phrase of verse 23. Well, let's consider these in turn. First, and then we'll apply the what, the how, and the when as we go. First, there's something for us to do in this passage, and that's the what. And I think that satisfies some of you who say, you know what, I don't like to sit still. I don't watch TV because I can't what? Sit still. I need to be busy. I need to be doing something. You want something to do. You're kind of like at the end of Luke 10, you're not the Mary, you're the what? You're the Martha. You're not spectators. You don't want to watch football. You want to play it. You're participants. You don't want to watch a fishing show. You want to fish. Okay. And Solomon gave his son a supremely important assignment, more than just an ordinary task to accomplish. It's more than if you're one of these guys out on the highway that's waving these signs like, go come in here and get a pizza. I'm so, if you've got that job, I don't want to insult you. That's not the most important job. If that's you, see me after the service. This is really important here in verse 23. It's more important than waving a sign about getting a pizza for eight bucks. This whole thing of guarding our hearts is that important. It's supremely important. It's an urgent and important assignment. And it's captured in three words. Keep your heart. So we want to ask these three questions. What is meant by heart? What makes the heart so valuable? And what does it mean to keep our hearts? And these first two questions are answered together. The heart's the center of our being. It's it's like our control center. Some of you might think it's a CPU. 
a central processing unit. And another word for it is soul. And when we say to someone, tell me what's on your heart, we mean put all the cards on the table. Don't pretend. This isn't, don't act with me. Be real. Don't hold back. Give it all. Tell me what's really going on. Be honest with me. Let me know. Pull it all out. Go to the bottom of the well. The heart's the very core of our being. And that's why it possesses such exceeding value. And things that have value or worth merit a very close watch. You know what that's like. They deserve our safekeeping. You travel in an airport. You keep your, your, like, your carry-on right near you. You guard it. It's got cash, maybe your passport, visa. Maybe it's got your computer, your iPad. You guard it. You don't want to lose it. You don't want it stolen. Things that are valuable demand that. We understand this. We take appropriate steps. Think about this. We wear helmets and seatbelts. At least some of us do. We change the oil in our vehicles. We check the pressure in our tires. We rotate, we rotate them periodically. We proof and spell check important documents before we send them. We walk around our garden every day. We pull weeds. We look and we're like, there's a bug, kill it. This needs water. We do that. We guard and we protect those things that have value. We put jewels and guns in safes and insure them. In 1979, I was a senior in high school. We went on a trip for 10 days to Europe. And one of our stops was Paris. If you're familiar with Paris, you're not surprised that we ended up at two places where, what's the big tall thing? Eiffel Tower, what's the place with all the paintings? You got it, okay? I didn't know about all the value of this stuff in the Louvre. But all I remember about the Louvre was this. We came to this painting and there were these guards posted around and all these people gathered around. What do you think it was? Mona Lisa. And they were there just to protect the Mona Lisa from theft or damage. And for this 18-year-old who was not really that culturally informed about the great pieces of art in the world, what I knew in that moment was this thing by Leonardo da Vinci called the Mona Lisa was super valuable. I could tell just in the way that it was being guarded. I knew then that it had a real place of honor among the world's priceless pieces of art. Solomon says, keep your heart. And it's a statement about something to do, but it's way much more than that. It's just a statement that demonstrates the value of our hearts. Anything God says, keep, guard, or watch has value. It's a matter of faith. We've got to press on to embrace that. Think about two passages. And it, you might, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with these two passages. Deuteronomy 6, 5 what we call the great Shema of Israel. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. All right? And then from Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, what? Trust in the Lord with all what? Your heart. All your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. These verses demonstrate the great place of the heart. It's the point, the place where love for God and the place for faith in God and His purposes and promises should be. For a moment, I don't want to assume everyone's here as a Christian. You might say, you know what? 
I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I'm a Christian, or you know, I know I'm not a Christian because I've been around Christians. I know what the, I know what they're like. I know what they believe. I know what they look like. And so I want to challenge you. I want to speak to you just for a few moments. I just want to ask you some questions. You don't need to answer out loud, but these are for you. Have you ever thought that God had a perfect design for your heart? Most of you you understand this anatomically. You understand that your heart is supposed to do what? Send blood everywhere throughout your body. Is that fair? Is that good, Felicia? All right. All right. We get that. And you get that even when you're six or eight years of age. But... I'm speaking here, if you're not not sure you're a Christian, did you ever realize that God had a purpose, a perfect design for your heart? And that was to love Him, to have faith in Him, that that is the place that all the springs of your life come out. Here's the second question. Have you ever considered that God intended for you to love Him first and best and to give Him all your affection, all your heart, without reservation? Everything. You don't leave anything, any, there's nothing left. You give it all. And that everyone and everything takes a back seat to God. I appreciated when, when Sam prayed right before the offering, just thinking about that everything that we have when we give to God, we just give out of what He's given us. And this morning, here's the challenge with your heart. Give it all to Him. That's what it means ultimately to be a Christian. You say, God, my life is not my own, it's yours. My heart is not my own, it's yours. Have you ever thought that God wants you to have a heart that trusts in Him, His promises, and His purposes? That your main focus is not on your plans, your purpose, your opinions, your possessions, but it's focused on Him. It's very other-centered, specifically God-centered. And that God actually crafted you with that design intent. Sometimes I get a little weary of going in restaurants and seeing menus that talk about handcrafted steaks, handcrafted beers, handcrafted artisan vegetables. Okay, I mean, you understand that? But God really did craft our hearts to be the epicenter for love for Him and faith in His promises and purposes. And not that a Christian has a heart that perfectly loves or trust God. We're not even close. We're not even close. But that's the desired trajectory and direction for every person who's been transformed by God's grace. You got that? It's no, we're not there yet, right? But we're headed there for sure. There's no question that that's our trajectory. Well, we've seen what the heart is and why it's so valuable. Now let's get to this third question. What does it mean to keep our hearts? Let's keep it simple. To keep our hearts is to nurture spiritual life in it by God's means. But it also means vigilantly guarding it from the dangers of indwelling sin. If I say vigil to you, what do you think? Prayer vigil? All night, all day? Yeah. Being right there, attentive, alert in prayer? We, we were, I was admiring Nick's yard when we came in Friday his lawn, how green, lush that it was. And we were talking about the fine art of keeping a lawn, that the way you kill weeds is actually by growing grass. Does that make sense? You crowd out the weeds. But this whole thing of, of guarding our hearts should be seen twofold as keeping 
keeping out those influences that spoil our hearts from a pure love and faith in God and His promises, but at the same time, it's nurturing life within, right? It wouldn't be enough just to put a fence around your house but never go to the grocery store, right? You'd probably get hungry within a day or so. And so, as we think about this thing of what the question, what does it mean to keep our hearts? It involves both a keeping out and a nurturing within. It means constantly, alertly, vigilantly guarding our hearts from the dangers of indwelling sins, Satan's schemes and the tendency of the world that wants to squeeze us into its mold. And what are those means to nurture life and keep our hearts? Isn't it cool that God didn't make this complicated? It's the Scriptures, prayer, worship, both alone and gathered, fellowship, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the celebration of baptism when we mark the entry of a new child of God into the visible church. And by the way, i got to say, I could have quit after that fourth song and said, we're done, no, no sermon. It was just so great to sing with you all. You sang with such heart and gusto. So thank you, Sam. Thank you for leading. Well, that, that last song on Psalm 73, I was like, I'm done. Let's go home. Rev up the car. It's awesome. And all these means to nurture life and keep our hearts are done in community and integration, not in isolation. There's no such thing, right, as this Lone Ranger Christian. To be a Christian means to be together in the body. This union with Christ, this union with one another. So here's a question, application question. Are you as disciplined in availing yourself of the means which God has designed for your sanctification as you are of other things? And here's what I mean. Do you keep putting off getting started on this this life of using the Christian disciplines, the means that are intended to help you grow in grace? Or are you more devoted to exercise, Facebook, sports websites, the stock market, or your investments? Are you more preoccupied with hobbies or planning your next vacation or home improvement project than those things that will help you keep your heart? What are you most, if you ask your spouse, you ask your brother or sister, what are you most vigilant about? What... What do you seem most alert and attentive to? Would they say it's the keeping of your heart? If not, then this message is intended to challenge both you and me in that area. Now we come to the how. We've seen the what. The ESV translates the how of this passage with the words, with all vigilance. And I like that. But I also like the NIV, above all else, Guard your heart. You know the difference, right, between diligence and vigilance? Diligence is like every day, okay, you're going to study Chinese. Ten minutes a day. Ten minutes a day. Ten minutes a day. That's diligence, and you're steady. Some of you are very diligent. You do That's expressing your work, your Bible reading, the way you keep your yard, whatever, the way you clean your house, the way you clean, what, a million ways it's expressed. But what about Vigilance. What is, what's the difference? Vigilance is like that Canada goose, the, the dad, the male, the husband, whatever you want to call it, the man, whose head is always up when his babies and his mate are feeding and their heads are down. They're not, they're only cares what they're putting in their stomachs. 
But that male goose, his head is up. He's alert. He's attentive. Nothing escapes his attention. Let me give you another illustration. This vigilance looks like the tomb guards, the guards who guard the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. Has anyone here ever seen it in person? Okay, you understand. Since July 2nd, 1937, the tomb has been vigilantly and continuously guarded for over 76 years now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's vigilance over a long period of time. Solomon says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Let nothing distract you. Let nothing discourage you. Let nothing make demands of you that will allow you to fail at this most important watch of your life. Some of you deal with this temptation when you keep trying and you keep trying, but you keep failing. You feel like, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down. You get weary of that. And you need to hear the word that you just keep there without having a kind of let Nike let's do it theology. There is a sense that per, perseverance is a very real part of the Christian life. Find those people that will encourage you. Use the means of grace in this thing of watching your heart, guarding your soul, even if you failed hundreds of times. Of all that you guard, of all that you invest your energies in to protect, keep your heart above all else, above all else, be on the alert. In May, I took a pastor from the upstate of South Carolina fishing in my canoe. He had never been in a canoe before. And it was a really windy day. I was in the back. I was the guide. He was in the front. He was fly fishing. And I... I could see every move he made, but he couldn't, because his back was to me and he felt uncomfortable twisting, he couldn't see me at all. I said this to him somewhat passionately after we'd been in the water, on the water for about five minutes. I said, Mark, whatever you do, I said, do not stand up, do not make sudden movements. And keep your center of gravity low while you're in this canoe together. Some of you have been a canoe. Have you ever capsized? You know what it's like. Okay. All right. I said, above all else that you do, no matter what you do, don't turn around, don't stand up, don't get your center of gravity. Like, don't stand up and fight a fish like this. I said, this is what I said. I want to fish today, but I don't want to swim. Above all else that you do, keep us dry. Keep us dry. And what has Solomon said? He says, above all that you guard, guard your heart. Above all that you watch, above everything that receives your attention, watch your heart. It's just unreasonable that we should pay attention to the things that we pay attention to and not have a conscious, intentional guarding of our heart. What's the answer to the most important question on Solomon's test? You understand the idea of one test, one question, one simple answer. Here it is. Keeping your heart is the most important watch of your life. We've arrived at our final question. Why do we need to keep our hearts with all vigilance above all that we watch? And here it is. Solomon provided his son 
A very simple answer. Second half of verse 23. He said, it's from the heart that flow the springs of life. Our hearts are the very source of our life, our souls before God. The place from which the very springs of life well up. You know if you've ever seen it that the Mississippi River is huge. Millions of gallons of water per day that it sends south on its journey. It's a 2,500-mile journey. But believe it or not, it has a beginning, a kind of birthplace where the very first gallons of water begin their long, long journey south toward the Gulf of Mexico. We call that place the headwaters. It's at, does anyone know it? Does anyone know the headwaters of the Mississippi River? It's called Itasco State Park, and it's in Minnesota. And that's where it all begins. It ends up sending all those millions of gallons of water every second into the Gulf. And our hearts are the headwaters of our life. It all begins here, and it can all go wrong, very wrong, right here. That's why we need to give it maximum protection, vigilant attention. And I would suggest that we already have habits where we do this, the way we check sports scores and the value of our 401k or our IRA or the way we walk around our garden or the way when we know company is coming sometimes. We do that quick. You ever do it? Company's coming and we need to do the really quick clean up through the house. You rumble around through that and everyone works together. You do it. You're aware. You know where you're headed. You know who's coming over. And if we can do that, I suggest that we have the capacity to do this thing of engaging in the most important watch of our life. Last October, I was telling you, some of you in Sunday school, I went to Russia for a month. We didn't drink the tap water. You couldn't. I was on the ninth floor of a 700-square-foot Soviet-style apartment in a little village that was designed by the communists, multiple apartment buildings around a school. We were pretty comfortable, but we just couldn't drink the water. So every five or six days, we took two 10-gallon jugs, and we walked a mile from our apartment building to a deep well through muck and trash to get to this great well that had really fresh, really cold drinking water. And our host, Alexei, took great pains to not pollute the well by getting them by getting dirt on our bucket or contaminating the well we were very careful almost like slicing seeding and chopping up a jalapeno pepper something like that where you don't want to get it on your face or in your eyes and so then we'd walk the mile back with 50 gallons of water here 50 gallons and we'd walk and after about 150 yards we'd take turns and the next guy we'd drop them the next guy would pick them up That water was so precious. And so because of that, we didn't want to contaminate the well. We took great pains to make sure the well, the bucket, the rope, the crank, the housing for the well was kept clean and sterile. It was for the good of the community. Well, you know that really a major problem with our hearts is that they're naturally sick with sin. Cardiologists use this phrase, they speak of sick hearts. But you know, if you've read the scriptures, that we have spiritually sick hearts until God 
kills them. In Jeremiah 17, 9, you know these words. The Bible records this for us. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, yes, we've seen this morning that, of course, our hearts need guarding as our most valuable treasure. But first, they need healing from the disease of sin that's ravished them. Otherwise, everything's just band-aids. And only God, by His power, through the good news of the gospel of His Son, can do that in you and in me. It's awesome. You know, when you come, when you drive a couple hours to preach, and you think about this, there's a passage some of you are familiar with, right? That says that God's Word never returns what? Void. I know this isn't pointless. We do things at times that we ask, why am I doing this? This is pointless. No good will ever come of it, right? Like, why am I doing this again? You clean the house only after what, only ha- what happens again. You've got to clean it all over. You do laundry this week, next week what happens? Only to do it again. You clean the toilet. You only got to do it. You cut the grass. It seems pointless. You've got to do it all over again. But the gospel... The good news of the Word here for our hearts is that God, by His Spirit, through His revelation, can do something in you and me. Even if our hearts are hardened, even if they're hardened by this deceitfulness of sin, He can take it from being hard. He takes it out and He puts in this soft, really supple, heart that's responsive to Him, that acts not dead but alive, that sees beauty and light and love and hope and a future in the gospel of God's Son. And I'd be wrong if I didn't put the beauty of Jesus Christ before you today. I want you to see Proverbs 4.23, but I want us to see like you've had this experience of walking around the corner and running into someone. And you, like, you couldn't get out of the way. Have any, anyone's ever had that experience? And like, almost lips to lips, face to face. You just run into something. I want you to run into Jesus Christ. This morning, I do. I don't, I want you to see Proverbs 4.23. But on the face of it, I want us to think that Jesus Christ is the great healer and the great keeper of our hearts. Don't die with a hard heart. Don't go on one more day with a heart that's hard, indifferent, and callous to God's call. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. You know what it's like to have unsatisfied thirst? And in John 7, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Sick hearts need healing. They need vigilant keeping. And I think this will prove to be the most important watch of our life. Well, three final applications. I'll be brief. Am I okay? Okay, good. Three applications and we're done. Number one, the first application is to every one of us here, and that is this. Be a student of yourself. Know yourself. Know the character of your own heart that you may guard it well. 
You know, a wise husband knows, studies his wife. He knows his wife. Just like a wise parent knows their children. If you're going to do this thing called guarding your heart, if you're going to engage in the most important watch of your life, you need to know yourself. And I'm not saying be self-absorbed. I'm saying be attuned to your besetting sins, to your tendencies. Think about when you fall, when you sin. What, why did I do that? What was going on? What's at the root level? Oh, this was the presenting issue, but what was the real thing? Possess a healthy self-awareness. You know what it's like when someone has really bad breath or body odor, but they don't know, they don't possess what? Self-awareness. You know the smell. You know you, you want to back up. You're like, like this. Okay? Don't be caught that way with your soul. And it's true whether you're 8 or 80. Study yourself to be aware of your tendencies to spiritual laziness, to apathy, to anger, to judgmental spirits, to hypocrisy, to lust, to pride, to covetousness. Don't be fooled. Don't be 50 years of age and not be attuned to the basic, your pattern, your, to the pathology, the way you live. As we travel through full adulthood, we shouldn't continue to be ignorant about our hearts or peculiar sinful struggles. I expect if I ask Eva, tell me what's going on in here, that should be one answer versus Daddy Nick, who's 30 years of age, right? You get that. And ask your mate. Be, be brave enough to ask your mate or friend or sibling to join you on this journey and say, tell me, what do you think? What do you think my basic sin struggles are? What do you think? Where am I at risk? What are my strengths? But what's my, like, just on the surface, just what's obvious, you know? Like, what, like I see a guy in a green shirt. I don't need anyone to point that out. It's a guy in a green shirt. Okay, tell me about me. What's going on? Ask your mate, your friend, parent to do that with you. Second application is for fathers. Do not leave your children's hearts unguarded. Don't be asleep at the wheel. Dads, this is a limited time offering. The years called when you're raising your children. Don't leave their hearts unprotected or unwatched. And more importantly, though, help your kids to cultivate gospel fruit in their own lives so that they can take responsibility for what? Watching their own hearts. Stop fishing and teach someone to what? Fish. Let's do this in a way, too, that's appropriate for our children's age. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they what? Write you a thank you note? (laughs) Grab the TV remote? No, lest they become what? Discouraged. Dads, guard your hearts in a way, your children's hearts in a way that's appropriate for their age and doesn't lead to their discouragement. And then finally, a third application. The three T's. Remember that we must be on high alert to watch our hearts when we experience the three T's of life. Tell me if you know what they are. What are the three T's of the Christian life? You should know two at least. Trials, temptations, and then especially 
for transition. This thing of like going from your parents' home out to establish your own home, from high school to college, from college into a different period of life, or from high school into a trade or a job. Something's new. You're in transition. So here's a question for you. Are you undergoing the fire of a particular temptation or trial? And I want to encourage us to not live there in isolation. That's exactly the point. Just like Solomon says, my son. The the very way he introduces each of these parts of the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs reminds his son of their father, that they're in relationship. When you're going through particular a particularly fiery trial or temptation or you're in a period of transition, call on one another and say, hey, pray for me. Spend time with me. Can, I, can you be a sounding board for me? Will you sit and talk? Will you have lunch with me? Can I, just, can I share this with you? Can you ask me hard questions in days ahead about how I'm dealing with this or pray for me? Are there any passages of Scripture that you would want to use to encourage me? Solomon says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. God, be with us as we engage this most important watch. Thank you.